This is the Sex and Psychology Podcast, and it's the sex ed you never got in school and won't get anywhere else. I am your host, Dr. Justin Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. People who practice polyamory tend to be stereotyped and portrayed in the popular media as young, white, wealthy liberals. In other words, they tend to be seen as a pretty homogenous group. But is that actually the case? A few years ago, some of my colleagues and I conducted a study of more than 3,000 people in polyamorous relationships and found that they're a surprisingly diverse bunch in many ways, including in their personal politics. In fact, when comparing our polyamorous sample to a large sample of people who were in monogamous relationships, we found that the polyamorists were actually less likely to identify as Democrats than monogamists. As a group, polyamorists still leaned on the more liberal side of the political spectrum, but we saw a lot of individual variability. This isn't that surprising when you consider the history of the modern polyamory movement. In fact, when this movement really began picking up steam during the sexual revolution of the 1960s and 70s, it had a very libertarian and countercultural bent to it that diverged from both the Democratic and Republican parties. So let's talk about the fascinating intersection between polyamory and politics. In this show, we're going to talk about how libertarian science fiction writers in the 1960s turbocharged interest in polyamory, how the 1980s Reagan years and right-wing backlash to the sexual revolution led to an organized polyamory movement, as well as the long-standing debate within the poly community about the degree to which polyamory is about sex versus relationships, connection, and spirituality. I am joined once again by Christopher Gleason, who lectures at Kennesaw State University and is the Director of Academic Programs at the Georgia Coalition for Higher Education in Prisons. He lives in Atlanta, and his latest book is titled American Poly, A History, which we discussed extensively in the previous episode. This is going to be an amazing conversation. Stick around, and we're going to jump in right after the break. Have you ever wondered how sex differs around the world? The Sexual Health Alliance can help you to expand your knowledge through their study abroad programs. Join Shaw in exploring different cultures, engaging in immersive learning experiences, and collaborating with international experts in the field of sexuality, while also traveling to amazing places and making new friends. Whether you join them for an online conference, enroll in a certification program, or embark on a transformative study abroad adventure, Shaw provides a platform to elevate your career you might even get the chance to study in a foreign country with yours truly. Come meet amazing people, gain valuable insights, and be at the forefront of sexual health education. Visit sexualhealthalliance.com to learn more and secure your spot today. The Kinsey Institute at Indiana University has been a trusted source for scientific knowledge and research on critical issues in sexuality, gender, and reproduction for over 75 years. Learn about recent research, events, and student activities on their website at kinseyinstitute.org. You can also follow them on social media at Kinsey Institute. Okay, Christopher, let's talk about politics and polyamory. 
So there's this popular stereotype out there that polyamorists are kind of this exceedingly liberal group. But it turns out that they're a very diverse bunch politically. And when you start to trace the history of polyamory, you'll actually find some really interesting conservative and libertarian roots. Now, I want to start this conversation by talking about something that I think a lot of people will find to be fascinating, which is how libertarian science fiction writers in the 1960s actually seemed to play a huge role in shaping the polyamory movement and just opening up people's minds to the idea of ethical non-monogamy. And one of the key players here was an author by the name of Robert Heinlein and a book he wrote called Stranger in a Strange Land. So before we talk about his influence, for listeners who are unfamiliar, please tell us who Heinlein was and a brief synopsis of what that book was about. So Robert Heinlein is one of the most famous 20th century science fiction writers. Most people probably know him for Starship Troopers, which was eventually made into a a movie in the late 90s, I believe. An awesomely bad movie. (laughs) It was. I remember I've seen it quite a few times. It's a a cult classic at this point. But I think that's probably what a lot of people know. But he, you know, he wrote so much throughout his tenure as a writer. He wrote children's books. He wrote many series of science fiction. He's a fascinating figure because, you know, he early in his life he is this new deal liberal he's in the 20s he's you know in new york city he's going through multiple open end marriages and then uh eventually he he ends up settling down in his third marriage but from these ideas he begins to write in his fictions and he he really uses fiction to critique kind of larger ideas in society. Specifically, uh, he talks about the two sacred cows of Western civilization, which are uh, monotheism and monogamy. And so over and over in his kind of thematically in his works, he'll kind of poke holes at, at these things. It's really interesting because, you know, the Cold War really kind of changes him in a lot of ways. And he goes from this freewheeling New Deal liberal to this very kind of America first elitist libertarian figure. And there's, you know, there's a lot of work that's been done on that transformation in, in him. But stranger a strange land he ends up working on for 15 years i believe a number of years uh, before he actually publishes it in the 60s and you know it's the story of a human that's raised on mars and, and comes back and has these telekinetic abilities that he has that he's he's learned there and he essentially structures this church based on the rejection of jealousy you know there's this kind of ritualistic free love that happens and it's just kind of the culmination of his critiques on kind of social mores of the time. And in the 1960s, its legacy is forgotten a lot. Uh, I think it gets overshadowed by kind of beat writers and different things like that. But it was very foundational at the time. And people in the 60s were really influenced by this. And it was a roadmap, essentially, for how to kind of push back against the sexual mores of the time. Yeah, from what I read in your book and in some other writings on the history of polyamory, it seems like Stranger in a Strange Land kind of became a Bible for people who were involved in 1960s counterculture. In fact, it even inspired its own religion that still exists today. So tell us a little bit more about kind of the impact of Heinlein's book and why did it play such a key role in the the history of American polyamory? Why, Why did it strike a chord at that kind of moment of counterculture? You know, it kind of was a perfect storm, I think. So I kind of trace this history, or I do trace this history, where it goes through Robert Heinlein's writing of Stranger in a Strange Land. And then there is Tim Zell, which is this figure who is living in Missouri at the time. And, you know, this is 
early 61, 62, right? And he's, he picks up this book, he reads it and it totally questions everything. It's, it's, he's already doing these things. He's experimenting with free love. He's reading Ayn Rand a lot, which is some, a really interesting dimension that comes up in this book. Very libertarian focused, very self-actualization is kind of the focus of this. And so he sees this and it, it really opens the door and he sees it as a model and he actually does build a religion on it. He uses this idea of pantheism that comes from this, which is also a, a theme that comes up in Stranger in a Strange Land, that you are God and I am God, and therefore we respect each other and we have our connection transcends, you know, the, the physical world in some sense. And he really runs with this. And he he also delves into this kind of emerging neo-pagan movement where he's beginning to think of nature worship as well. And he really just puts all of these things together. And I think what Heinlein really offers is a kind of check on the maybe excesses of anything that would push hedonism or anything that would essentially infringe on the uh, well-being of others, right? So there, there's this libertarianism that can become, you know, especially in the Randian manifestation that can be very detrimental and it can be very selfish. And I think what Heinlein's kind of blueprint did was, is it gave kind of a, a mystical, but very benevolent underpinning where it, it, it allowed people to create a sexual ethics that allowed for multiple people, but also did it in a very respectful and ethical way that lifted up what they literally saw as the divinity of the other person. Yeah. So fascinating. And it's so interesting as I'm thinking about this more broadly, how many science fiction writers have influenced religion in some way or another. And I'm thinking, for example, about the the birth, the origin of Scientology and how that goes back to a sci-fi novel as well. And so science fiction has had an interesting influence <laughs> on our society in a lot of ways. But I'm glad you brought up uh, Ayn Rand because, you know, I was really surprised to see her mentioned in the book as having, you know, some kind of influence on the polyamory movement because she is somebody who is widely regarded as having a huge influence on right-wing politics in general, which kind of would seem to be at odds with the idea of polyamory. So can you tell us a little bit more about the story there in terms of, you know, what's the connection between her writings and the, the polyamory movement? A hundred percent. So there was actually a first chapter of the original manuscript that got cut out that was all about Robert Heinlein and Ayn Rand's life. And it was because, you know, Tim Zell, whose wife, Morning Glory, ends up coining the term polyamorous in the 90s, like, Rand and Highland were his major influences. So if you go back through the Church of All Worlds, which he he modeled after that Stranger in a Strange Land, all of his early musings, all of his early, you know, illusions or everything are coming from Rand's novels and Highland. So I essentially followed that back through Ayn Rand's life as well. And it's very easy to do through Heinlein, but Rand tried to promote a form of ethical non-monogamy. She had a ongoing relationship with her protege that her husband knew about. It wasn't beneficial to really anyone in that relationship because she, you know, her objectivist philosophy was very, it's very selfish. It's very self-centered. And so she would do it even though it was emotionally, it brought great emotional detriment to everybody else in those relationships. But she did it because she believed in the philosophy. And she said, because, you know, they were connected because of their commitment to the shared ideals that they should be able to be lovers. And so it's not a positive, you know, I don't think polyamorous would look back at that tradition and say, we want to claim Ayn Rand as a forerunner. <laughs> I think what it did was, is her rejection of Judeo-Christian morals and her focus on overturning kind of traditionalism in that sense allowed her to to delve into that 
It's very interesting, though, because as uh, Tim Zell become, you know, he begins to kind of go through these ideations of different identities, right, where he changes his name to Otter and then Oberon. I think most people in the polyamorous community would know him as Oberon Zell now. But he begins to, you know, in the 70s, kind of figure out what Rand is. And when he does that, he kind of puts away that influence and really goes in that Heinlein way of uh, respect and love for other people. So interesting. And, you know, you can still kind of see that tension there in the polyamory community today where some people kind of see it as being a little bit more selfish, especially if it's focused more on sex, whereas other people see it as this, you know, more benevolent, more spiritual, other kind of thing. So, yeah, it's it's so interesting to look at these roots and how they were influenced by these very popular science fiction authors at the time who had interesting political beliefs themselves. Now, this is also interesting to me because, as I said, you know, there's that common belief that polyamory originated on the far left, but it has always attracted people across the political spectrum. But at the same time, it's still often been a frequent target of conservative politicians. And as polyamory started to spread during the sexual revolution of the 1960s and 70s, it became the target of a lot of conservative backlash in the 1980s. And it was in response to that backlash that polyamory really started to become an organized political and social movement. So tell us a little bit about that period in time when, you know, in the 1980s, the sexual revolution was formally declared to be over, I think on Time Magazine in 1984 or something like that. And there was this return to sexual conservatism. So how did that shape the polyamory movement? I think it was a really pivotal time. And that's one of the things that I really kind of try to focus on in the book is, you know, you have this multitude of variants of people who are rethinking things in the 60s and 70s. Free love is still this kind of huge tidal wave where people are trying to really rethink nuclear family from the ground up. But that really stops in the 80s with the Reagan revolution. You have the emergence of the religious right, Phyllis Shafley, you have Jerry Falwell, you know, these anti-abortion, anti-ERA things. This really, the narrative becomes save the family. You know, the family is really the center of Western civilization. It's the center of America, right? The soul of America is kind of central to it. And I think that it really was a pivotal moment in polyamory because that's when you really see them cohere as a group and these disparate factions begin to come together. And when they do that, that's what forms kind of the, the discourse. And, you know, I, I argue there that kind of the forerunners are the, the two women who will end up founding Loving More and really being kind of a voice of polyamory in the early years you know, they internalized that that dialogue and they said, well, if we're going to promote ethical non-monogamy, then we have to put it as a, and I think they were already doing this and they just kind of learned how to shape what they were kind of already saying, especially Ryan Nearing, which I point out in the book, but it is a defense of the family, you know, as we begin to emerge in this kind of post sixties world where we're looking for stability or religiosity or, you know, just these foundational kind of safety of home. They actually, instead of saying, you know, that's a regression to an old system, they say, no, we do want that. And real polyamory actually is the best thing for a post nuclear world. Uh, it gives financial stability. It gives commitment. It gives all of these things that are the best parts of family. And it's actually better than the nuclear family can do it. It's so interesting, and it actually ties in really well with what my next question was going to be, which is that, you know, in the poly community, there's kind of been this long-standing debate about the degree to which polyamory is about sex. And, you know, I've seen this debate happen and play out 
in the media and on social media in recent years where you have some non-monogamists who criticize other non-monogamists for being too hedonistic and too focused on sex when instead they should be focused on connection, love, or spirituality. And it was interesting to see how that debate actually traces back decades when I was reading your book. And I'm curious to hear a little bit more about your take on why that is. You know, is it just due to different people within this community having different ideas or beliefs about what polyamory is? Or was it more political, you know, with some people thinking that, you know, by de-emphasizing sex, that that can help in terms of creating more acceptance of polyamory, especially, you know, it being a community that's the target of political attacks and so much political hatred. So is it a bit of both, something else? What do you think? I think it's definitely, it it is a little bit of both. I definitely, I focus on the two co-founders of Loving More. And I think that those are, it's a really good way to follow that debate within polyamory because they were night and day different. One definitely was coming from the ethical non-monogamy originates from this desire for lifelong commitment, connection with multiple people. You know, the relational aspect is center. And then the other one was very much more freeform, right? They wanted free anything that kind of infringed on the personal freedom or the ability to get the needs met that they felt like they needed to get met. Then that was not something they desired. So much to the point that even though they were so pivotal in helping polyamory become kind of part of the mainstream conversation, they became an outcast for a short period of time because other polyamorous saw that is not proper polyamory. And I, you know, I think that people approach polyamory for different reasons. A lot of people approach it because they want different needs met from different people. And that is a very, I don't want to say it's selfish, but it's a self-aware reason for moving in there. And then other people want it to create kind of a network community and a, a larger support system. And so there can be different reasons. And I think, you know, when you're having this conversation about reframing the social structure of intimate relationships, both of those come into, and sometimes simultaneously they come in. But I think, you know, with the history, you can see that those two people represent very different ways of coming to the same conclusion. And they actually partner very closely and they would have disagreements over things, but they would partner closely. They would work on initiatives together and they would put those differences aside as long as they could. It was actually the, the larger community that, that pushed them apart more than they pushed themselves apart. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what's that saying? That politics makes for interesting bedfellows, <laughs> which is you know kind of appropriate in this particular case where you can have two people who have such seemingly very different views on polyamory and how it works and is supposed to operate. And as I said, you still see that tension today where different people seem to be advocating for their version of polyamory. And it's like, what is the valid version of polyamory? There are multiple valid versions. And so it it just turns into this kind of unproductive argument, I think, when some people are trying to say, this is what it is or is supposed to be. Who's to say, you know, because it's not like there's just one model for this. You know, when you're talking about the effect of the Internet, one of the effects of the Internet was that it brought polyamorous together. The other effect of the Internet is it became very divisive over what polyamory was. And so, you know, we talk about the flame wars of the Internet where, you know, one, one of my, the writers that I quote in here was talking about the poly Gestapo that says what can be and what can't be polyamory. Right. And so some of the community saying we got to get past that. And then some people are very uh, opinionated about what is and what isn't polyamory. Yeah. And that is an interesting point that pre the internet, you had 
people all around the country who were practicing polyamory, but they were isolated. They didn't know that other people were doing it or how they were doing it, right? And so when people had that opportunity to connect and form this community and learn, oh, you're doing this very differently from me. Yeah, you can see where that can lead to tension and flame wars and all that other good stuff that comes along with spending time online. Now, in terms of people today who practice polyamory, what I've seen in my own research is that their political leanings are kind of all over the place. So we published a study a couple of years ago looking at the demography of polyamory. And we recruited a sample of over 3,000 people who identified as polyamorous. And we looked at how do they identify politically, gender, sexual orientation, all these other sorts of things. And we find that politically, by and large, they're not liberal, you know, and the stereotype I think of polyamorous is that they're white, wealthy, liberal elites. And that just wasn't the case. They're a much more diverse community than people might think or what the stereotypes about them actually are. I'm so glad that we did that study because there just hadn't really been anything out there large scale looking at who is it that's actually practicing polyamory. And so it can look very different depending on who's into it and where they're living and all these other sorts of factors. So that just ties in with this broader point about, you know, what is polyamory? What is the model of it? What does it look like? It, it looks different for different people. It does. I, you know, I think that political dimension and, you know, I think that cuts across queerness too, in a way that people don't like to admit sometimes, you know, yep. on, on both sides of the political spectrum. But if you think in terms of personal liberty, if you're on the libertarian spectrum, you're going to essentially just say that protecting personal liberty is is a benefit. And if you are on the you know political left, you're typically going to accept what is typically a more liberal approach to sexual relationships or orientation. So it doesn't surprise me that someone who was kind of pushing back on this instance could fall you know somewhere on anywhere on the political spectrum. Yeah, and I think this is all very much shaped by the types of polyamory that are visible to us. I think that's where some of the stereotypes about political leanings come from. And that's also true with regard to queerness, you know, as you mentioned. So I think people who are more libertarian or more on the conservative side who are practicing polyamory or who are queer, they're probably not as likely to be open about their non-monogamy, you know, because it's not necessarily important to them what other people know about them. You know, it's kind of like a live and let live kind of mentality. And by contrast, I think people on the left are more likely to embrace non-monogamy as an identity and as something that's important for other people to know about them. And so that association between liberal and non-monogamous, I think, is reinforced because they tend to be more open about that and embrace it as a form of identity. I don't know. Do you think there's any truth to that? I think you're 100% right. I think that really comes to politics of identity. What you are putting into the political sphere is that is your identity politics? Is that a privatization? Is that how you want to approach the society you live in? Or is it something that you want to really put out there in the front and be in the main square in the conversation? I think you're right. That really is going to define what type of polyamory or how you fall on that spectrum. It doesn't surprise me. I, I mean, the fact that there could be many people practicing polyamory that will never come out and tell other people uh, because of probably the larger political climate of their communities, it would not be surprising at all. 
Yeah. <laughs> there are a lot more people practicing polyamory and other forms of non-monogamy than you might think, but so many of them are not open about it. You know, I, for example, live in Indiana, which is a very conservative state. We actually have a very active, very big swinging population here. And, you know, it's mostly conservative people who are into it, you know, but they're not open about it because that, you know, swinging isn't considered cool to be open about, to be practicing if you're a conservative person, given what conservative political values are when it comes to sex and marriage and relationships and so forth. So I think this also has interesting implications for debates about rights when it comes to polyamorous relationships, especially something like legal recognition. I think folks who tend to identify as polyamorous make that a core aspect of, of who they are and how they navigate their life every day in, in the world around them are probably more inclined to want to see legal rights established for polyamorous people to formally have multiple relationships recognized. Whereas for people who are content to just kind of live and let live, you know, their business is their own business and, you know, there shouldn't be government interference in it. They're probably more likely to not be as concerned about legal rights. So I think it'll be interesting to see, you know, what happens with all of this going forward. There have been some small pushes toward more recognition of multi-partner relationships in the last couple of years. I know in uh, in Massachusetts, there have been a couple of cities that have started to grant some type of formal legal recognition toward multi-partner relationships. But I think we're still a long ways off from that being widespread throughout the country. I'm a little ambiguous at the end of the book about that because, you know, the, the history that I chart, you know, in the 80s, there was this kind of push and that, that didn't get the traction that they were really looking for. And then there was a, a kind of a pullback. And I think that, you know, especially when you have multiple times where people really lose jobs, lose, you know, safety nets because of stepping out on a limb for something, you kind of see this pullback. And I think with the defense of abortion at this point, trans rights, other things have kind of come to the forefront and probably taken precedent main stage over that. And I was kind of ambivalent at the end because I was like, you know, up until now, there's this kind of libertarian heritage or even if people who weren't libertarian, who maybe were more liberal, still kind of just practiced it in private more than not. But, you know, I have seen, you know, the Vanity Fair article about the civil rights, polyamory civil rights thing that's coming or I mean, as a historian, I don't want to date myself a but then I, I didn't really have the data to say I don't know where this is going. But, you know, I do know that there's the coalition now that is trying to do kind of legal protections and different things like that. So we'll see where it goes. You know, I think like with anything, especially if you're going to get a bipartisan kind of push for it, it's going to take people on both sides who get put in positions where they don't have the ability to visit sick loved ones that they should be able to or, you know, have custody issues that come up. Once enough people across a wide political spectrum run into those issues, we probably will have a push for rights. Yeah. And it'll also be interesting to see what happens just in the future generationally, you know, as younger generations come to more power and they tend to be more supportive of multi-partner relationships, you know, that might be sort of the change or catalyst for all of this as well. Because if you look at surveys of younger adults today, you have a pretty high percentage of them who say they're open to the idea of practicing some form of non-monogamy. So, I'm always hesitant to make predictions about you know where sex and relationships are going to go in the future, but I'll definitely be keeping an eye on it. That's a great point, though. It would be very interesting to see if maybe there doesn't need to be a lot like a protracted legal, you know, evolution. If it could just be a natural progression of a generational change. 
Yeah. Now, in thinking about the intersection of politics and polyamory, it's not surprising to me that you have a number of Republicans and conservatives who are doing it, even though they might not be open <laughs> about doing it. If for no other reason than in my own research on sexual fantasies, I actually find that Republicans fantasize about non-monogamy in basically all forms compared to Democrats. And part of the appeal to Republicans might be that non-monogamy is more of a taboo to them. And what is taboo is often more arousing. And I couldn't help but think about this when reading your book, that maybe the appeal of you know counterculture in the 60s and 70s had a lot to do with people's tendency to just kind of gravitate toward the taboo. There's some sort of excitement about that. So, you know, I think everything we've been talking about in terms of libertarian influences and writing and personal freedom and spirituality and all these things, yes, they played a role, but I think part of it was also just kind of the idea or appeal of the taboo. What do you think? I think if there was, I think a lot of the people who at least were foundational in kind of pushing the ideas and, and building the coalitions probably tried to downplay if that was, you know, a really driving force. Because what I see mainly is kind of those two streams, one that kind of says this is about larger connectivity and then another that is just about personal autonomy in general, like freedom. And I think that's really kind of the two main streams. I mean, I, I definitely can't deny that what is exciting, it, you know, what is kind of on the outskirts or, or forbidden is definitely exciting. And I'm sure that people dip their toe into at least the potential of polyamory for those reasons. But I think for the the central drivers and activists and, and kind of thought leaders that I've seen have, have at least in print and in their journals veered away from that being their primary motivation. <laughs> Whether that's self-deception or not, I don't know. <laughs> and sometimes we don't know what our motivations are. We're not always yeah. good at introspection, but I suspect for the personal freedom folks who kind of gravitated more to polyamory, that the taboo element might have played somewhat of a role for them. Because when we have restrictions placed on our personal freedom, that's what often leads us to want to break free and to do those things that are taboo. It's to reassert your autonomy or independence. But then there's also some excitement that comes along with, you know, breaking or violating those taboos. Yeah. And then it becomes identity forming yep. as well. Putting on the rebel is part of a lot of people's identity. And I, I definitely see that in a couple of the characters that I, that I follow here. Yep. And I identify as a rebel. So <laughs> <laughs> I do as well. <laughs> so thank you so much for this amazing conversation, Christopher. It was a pleasure to have you here. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work and get a copy of your new book, American Polly? Yeah, American Polly, it's uh, available anywhere books are sold after November 1st. And then I am primarily active on Instagram uh, at Christopher M. Gleason uh, is the handle there is, is how you get in touch with me. And I'll be sure to include links to all of that in the show notes. So thank you again so much for your time. I really appreciate having you here. And thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of this podcast, visit my website at sexandpsychology.com or subscribe on your favorite platform where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on the socials for daily sex research updates. I'm most active on Instagram at Justin J. Miller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want, and Christopher's new book, American Polly. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.